History has obliged this podcast by designating the arrival of jazz and film to coincide with the arrival of the first sound film. The jazz singer starred Al Jolson as Jackie Rabinovitz, a talented singer who defied his father's wishes that he follow in his footsteps and become a cantor in the local synagogue. The jazz singer is a landmark film for another reason. It was released in 1927, a time when anti-Semitism ran deep within American society. The Bolshevik Revolution of 1917 had turned the Russian Empire into the Soviet Union, and American capitalists saw communism as synonymous with Judaism. So reactionary was the era that anything not white, Anglo-Saxon or Protestant was viewed not only with suspicion, but also as un-American. In fact, the Roaring Twenties saw the membership of the Ku Klux Klan reach a peak of over 4 million. And yet, here was a Hollywood studio choosing as its very first sound picture a film that placed front and centre a story about the Jewish experience in America. Of course, the beauty of that decision was that by implication, the story was also about every immigrant who huddled and amassed to America's shores in the previous centuries. Which makes it a landmark movie for another reason. It presents jazz as the authentic American music. And that proposition is as correct as it is complex. Because in the film, a Jew wears blackface to assimilate into the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant world. New York had theatre, Hollywood the cinema, and both had become houses of worship. Secular homes where people, no matter their race, class, colour or creed, could go and venerate their idols. The film was a smash hit, with audiences across the continent either completely oblivious to the ethnic identity at the heart of the story, or simply willing to overlook that in favour of experiencing the new phenomenon of a talking picture. Coincidentally, within a year of the jazz singer's release, there first appeared another great American icon, Mickey Mouse, and perhaps it is less than an accident that in the early days of the sound film, animators realised that jazz was an ideal soundtrack to the burgeoning art of the cartoon. Both were modern, both were iconoclastic, and animators such as Max and Dave Fleischer were especially swift to grasp the potency of famous jazz personalities. Folks, now here's a story about Minnie the Moocher. She was a red-hot coochie-coocher. Starring alongside Betty Boop in Minnie the Moocher, you had Cab Calloway. Sleepy Time Down South had the Boswell sisters. And Louis Armstrong featured in I'll Be Glad When You're Dead, You Rascal You. The fact that all these cartoons were named after the tunes is extremely telling, as is the fact that the animators were able to introduce African-American personalities, albeit by proxy, into mainstream films. In the 1920s and 30s, jazz was dominated by the likes of Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington and George Gershwin, whose Porgy and Bess still stands as a milestone in American culture. It ain't necessarily so. It ain't necessarily so. The 
things that you're liable to read in the Bible, it ain't necessarily so. It is important to note that Gershwin did not label his work a musical, but instead titled it an opera, thus declaring American music equal to classical European culture. And where the jazz singer showed a Jewish experience, Porgy and Bess championed the African-American experience. Jazz has often been described as the quintessential music of resistance and rebellion. But I believe if jazz is anything, it is a democratic art. Modern, culturally eclectic and ethnically diverse, it thrives on spontaneity and improvisation. Fittingly, while jazz found a foothold in the speakeasies of the 1920s and early 30s, Hollywood's comedies, melodramas and westerns preferred classicism and so it fell, fittingly, to musicals to take up the refrain. Cole Porter, Irving Berlin and Jerome Kern composed for films such as Top Hat, Follow the Fleet and Swing Time. This early phase reached a peak in 1943 with Cabin in the Sky. Brown! Ain't about time for you to get into that cooch dance. Ladies, ladies! Georgia, remember when you're in the presence of a lady, you got to act like one. Oh, I guess she's just jealous because she ain't got what I got. Quit kidding yourself. Not only have I got everything you got, but a whole lot more. Well, you ain't got little Joe. And that's the main thing you got I don't want. And if I run across any more secondhand junk, I'll pass that on to you. <laughs> Starring Ethel Waters, Lena Horne and Eddie Rochester Anderson, it was also the first Hollywood studio picture with an all-black cast. But for all that progress, the film resorted to vulgar racial stereotyping and its release was clouded in controversy. Yet, just like the jazz singer was a hit for Warner Brothers, Cabin in the Sky paid dividends for MGM, grossing in seven times its budget. Jazz really found its Hollywood groove, in quite appropriately, the noir cycle of the 40s and 50s. I say appropriately because Hollywood's noir cycle came out of another unique American art form, Pulp Fiction, that was the spawning ground for writers such as Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett and Cornell Woolrich. Again, this was artistic democracy, authors breaking down the barriers between high and low culture, and bringing focus to areas of American life that were wholly condemned if not outright ignored by the mainstream establishment. So in the 40s, you have jazz soundtracks for the likes of Phantom Lady, The Blue Dahlia and Cry of the City. And then in the 50s, The Sweet Smell of Success, Touch of Evil and Odds Against Tomorrow. By that stage, the likes of Chico Hamilton, Henry Mancini and Charlie Mingus were all composing for film. But for arguably the greatest jazz soundtrack ever, we have to cross to France in 1958, where Louis Malle, called in Miles Davis to score lift the scaffold. The next year, Duke Ellington composed a score to Otto Preminger's landmark courtroom drama, Anatomy of a Murder. (laughs) 
a husband is accused of murdering the man who raped his wife. Being candid about the evidence, this film was the first time several words deemed unmentionable by Hollywood's production code were first uttered in a studio picture. Bitch, contraceptive, panties, penetration, rape, slut and sperm. And it is precisely because Preminger was taking on the establishment, cinematic, legal and social, that he chose the mode of jazz as his clarion call for change. But those films are with jazz soundtracks. What of films about jazz musicians? Sadly, there are precious few. Of course, you have documentaries such as Let's Get Lost, Bruce Weber's profile of Chet Baker, and Straight No Chaser, Charlotte Sverin's look at Thelonious Monk. But dramas that focus on actual jazz musicians are few and far between. And the good ones? Well, you can probably count them on the valves of one trumpet. With Bird, Clint Eastwood delivered a masterful biopic of Charlie Parker. Starring Forrest Whitaker as the bebop legend, one of the many reasons why this film works is because instead of showing Whitaker playing the opening notes to one of Parker's tunes and then cutting away to a different scene, Eastwood makes sure we frequently heard the entire number. Then we have Spike Lee's Mo Better Blues. Although entirely fictionalised, it captures the ego, ambition, self-doubt and iron discipline required to achieve any sort of success. Lee comes from a family instilled with music and education. His mother Jacqueline was a teacher of arts and black literature, while his father Bill is a composer, conductor and musician. And for Mo Better Blues, Bill Lee's score was performed by the Branford Marsalis Quartet with Terence Blanchard on trumpet. But for perhaps the best ever jazz movie, we have to cross once again to France. Bertrand Tavernier's Rand Midnight trumps them all. Not only because the soundtrack features the works of Thelonious Monk, Kenny Dorham and Jimmy Rolls, and not just because all the music was arranged by no less a master than Herbie Hancock, and not just because its lead character is a composite of jazz giants Lester Young and Bud Powell, and not just because it cast real-life jazz legend Dexter Gordon in the lead. No, Round Midnight wins because the film itself flows like a piece of music. Three good jazz movies, is that all cinema has been able to muster? Perhaps it would be four had Stanley Kubrick been able to realise his own project. In 1985, he was given Swing Under the Nazis, a book written by Mike Zverin, a trombonist from New York who had performed with Miles Davis before turning to journalism. And yes, he is also the one-time husband of Charlotte Zverin. 
Swing Under the Nazis focused on how jazz continued to be played in a small pocket of Nazi-occupied Europe during World War II. Thumbing through the book, Kubrick was taken by a snapshot of Luftwaffe Oberstleutnant Dietrich Schulz-Kuhn, posing with Django Reinhardt, four African musicians and a Jewish man outside a Paris nightclub. Think about it, a Nazi palling around with a gypsy, four black men and a Jew, all because he loved their music. Zverin subtitled his book Jazz as a Metaphor for Freedom, and it was the book's philosophy that linked into Kubrick's own. He was a firm believer in music's ability to unify people and bridge the deepest differences. He was also a long-time fan of swing and long wanted to make a movie about World War II. The project would have allowed him to do both, and had Kubrick gotten to make the film, his intention was to call it Dr. Jazz. Thank you.